0: Thank you for joining us at Essential Ethics, your gateway to ethical discussion and education about complex bioethical issues that arise when caring for sick children. Essential Ethics is made possible by funds raised through the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. We want you to be inspired by the stories of courage of our patients and parents, and the staff who care for sick children, and be inspired by the clear thinking of the team at the Children's Bioethics Centre when things get tricky. Welcome to our series of classic conundrums from the team at Essential Ethics. Essential Ethics is brought to you by the Children's Bioethics Centre of the Royal Children's Hospital, I'm your host, John Massey. What should a paediatrician do when a parent refuses treatment that is recommended? This is not an uncommon scenario in our modern healthcare system with empowered parents or patients and our concept of shared decision-making. But what if refusing treatment means that the child will die? To help us think about treatment refusals by parents, I'm joined today by two experts Kanika here from the Department of Oncology here at the Royal Ch- Children's Hospital. Kanika.
1: Hello. Hi.
0: And Molly Williams, from, also from Department of Oncology and Palliative Care. But Molly's also had a strong interest in medical ethics. Welcome, Molly.
2: Thanks so much, John.
0: I might just put this case to you, but just to remind our listeners that this is a case uh, that we've made up. Sometimes cases like this and situations do arise, and this is a 14-year-old girl we've called Jade, who has a high-grade glioma, it's a type of brain tumour. She presented with headaches, but no evidence of neurological impairment. She's otherwise a healthy year eight student. Primary surgical resection with post-operative radiotherapy is the recommended treatment. But with this, there's still a 30% chance that we might prolong her life for two to three years. But the treatment's not curative. Without treatment, she's likely to die within six months. However, surgery might cause significant neurological deficits that impact her quality of life. Her parents wish to try prayer and natural therapies, including considering options overseas. So I think this is a really uh, tricky situation and what we might do is just frame up an ethical question and then start to work around that. So is it ethically acceptable for Jade's parents to refuse standard therapy and pursue prayer and natural therapies? Kanika, what do you think about this case?
1: Uh, so it's a difficult case which and a difficult question. Um, the way I tend to approach... Um, families' wishes in these sorts of situations is try and break it down into um, a number of different areas. And I think the first thing that I'd like to think about is the risks and benefits of therapy, Um, the medical therapy that we're recommending. Um, So um, when I talk about risks, um, we talk a little bit about what the risks of surgery are um, and what that will mean for Jay's quality of life. And what her perspective is on that, on those risks, and what her parents' perspectives are, um, and then you um, also contrast that against the benefits of therapy. For in this case, would be that it would prolong her life, or have a small to moderate chance of prolonging her life, but won't ultimately cure her. Um, so that's probably the first thing that I would think about. Um, The second thing that I would think about is um, what would be the risks and benefits of her parents' wishes, which in this case at the moment would be that they would like to pursue sort of spiritual and faith-based healing as well as natural therapies overseas. Um, And then thirdly, because Jade, you know, is a um, 14-year-old girl um, and capable of, probably understanding a lot of the decisions that are being made around her care, what her perspective is and what these decisions will have on the life that she leads and the life that she wants to lead and what her parents' perspective is. And so I think that you have to look at all of those components um, and balance them up against each other.
0: Do you think it's any one person's decision? Does it lean heavily on the medical opinion just regarding... The parents and regarding Jade a bit, or is it all evenly matched? Can you just at the beginning get a sense of that?
1: I think it really depends on the risks and benefits of medical therapy. I think in a um, situation where cure is not possible, um, I think that um, the parents and the child's wishes when it comes to the things that they value in their life. I think, gain greater importance, Um, whereas I think in a situation where cure might be possible um, and the risks of therapy are not high, then I think medical advice then becomes a little bit more um, prominent as a decision-making tool. But I think all of those decisions still have to be made within the framework of the family's ideas, the family's wishes and beliefs, and Um, their, um, I think, understanding of the situation as well.
0: I guess the way the conversation has started with thinking that Jade really has no chance, but we don't totally know that. And I guess that's why that we might offer resection, surgical resection, trying to minimise any negative impact that has in terms of long-term neurological consequences. And then radiotherapy, again, with the same ideas so I think sounds like the chance of survival is pretty small but not zero and Molly it sounds like the fact that the chance of cure is low opens up a whole lot more options to allow the parents thinking and perspective on this to hold sway do you agree with that
2: Absolutely, John. Um, in in a situation where cure is vanishing, the chance of cure is vanishingly small. Then, the wishes of the child and her family become really dramatically more prominent. Um, if if resection has a decent risk of causing outcomes that Jay would find unacceptable, then. Uh, then I think her, her wish to not have surgery would be really reasonable to respect. This is something that kind of comes into the, the zone of child or zone of parental discretion, um, where I don't think any of us as oncologists would feel incredibly strongly that we must insist that she had surgical um, surgical therapy. We, we would not insist that she had um uh, radiotherapy uh, because those two things can have burdens, and our expectation is that she won't be cured ultimately, regardless of that. And I think if Jade and her family have an understanding that her life will be shorter, her, her life is likely to be shorter, but potentially more rich in that she can participate in it fully without the therapies that we offer, then I think that all of us would be respectful. Of their, um, of their wish to, to not go ahead with surgery and to choose quality of life over quantity of life. Um, having said that, I think that this is a really interesting situation and an interesting scenario um, because what what I've often found is that, um, is that parents who say, well, I think we will pray um, and and not go ahead with the treatment that you're offering. And that sometimes comes up when we have a a substantially more curable tumour than Jade's tumour. But but those families, I feel, often don't have a realistic understanding of the risks of treatment and the benefits of treatment um, and have an overblown belief in the power of their natural therapies or their spiritual therapies. Um, And in that situation, I would certainly be spending a pretty decent amount of time trying to explore the family's thoughts and understandings about what medical therapy involves and what their natural therapies might involve to try and get them a bit closer to maybe a realistic understanding of of what those two situations are and I guess what I mean by that is that if the parents say oh no we're not going to have your therapy which is potentially curative we're going to go away and pray and that's going to or we're going to go away and have cannabinoids and that's going to totally cure her um no questions asked you know we've seen that on the internet that that's not a real that's not a realistic place to be coming from and I think that in that situation I'd be um I'd be more cautious about accepting the parents' wishes as um, as a good path forward for the child when the wish, when the wishes and expectations are not really in line with reality at all.
0: So you've raised quite a number of issues in that, Molly, that we're going to need to, to pull apart, and one of them was the early sense that you're putting a lot on Jade to try and make the decision. The other um, was a clash of values perspectives between perhaps the more scientific medical side and then the belief-based system. The other though that we might start by exploring is, is in a little bit around sort of risk perception and, and even that is balanced against choice architecture which is the way we present that information to them because I, th- I think there's their perception of what the risks are. But there's also the person explaining it to them who will, for a whole variety of reasons, hopefully as the doctor be informed by their medical, but will have personal views too. So can I, how do you balance that if we're thinking about the choice architecture and the way you're selling the information, if I might use that word, and gauging the parent's risk aversion?
1: Um, that's that's quite difficult to do sometimes I think initially the first step is actually to have an understanding of how the parents process information and how much of that information they've understood often when you have a prognosis that is poor um, and a family that's facing a huge life change changing moment um, Sometimes it can, for some families, take a long time for them to actually process the information that you're providing. So I think in the first instance, when you relay the information, I think it's something that you have to revisit on several occasions to try and check in and see what part of the information that you've given is understood by the family and what their understanding is. Um, And then I think once you can gauge that, you can slowly try to then introduce the elements of decision making in this space. And once again that can be really hard because people do of course rely upon their cultural and their spiritual um, and their personal experience to help them cope in such a space. And so I think you have to um, be aware of all of those factors and try to understand what role they're playing in the decision making. in terms of trying to relay openly and honestly what the choices are and what the prognosis is for a family can be really difficult because some families don't wish to have that knowledge. Um, and so you, I try to be as honest as possible in relaying that prognosis but I'm also aware that sometimes that information can be very overwhelming. Um, I think that then once you start to undertake that decision-making process, and I think it's important to also engage a number of um, your team in that process. So not only, um, you know, the nurses that we work with and social workers who can also help gauge a parent's understanding and their decision-making – Um, then you can get a better idea of whether it's realistic. In terms of how do you recognise what part your own personal perspective or emotions play in the information that you provide, um, we as a team, I think, heavily involve other colleagues in our decision-making so that we actually do have another clinician's or several clinician's perspectives so that when we're telling a family... Um, what we think is the right pathway, we have a number of perspectives that are emotionally a bit more distant from the family informing that decision. And I think that that's really important because it provides a lot of confidence that we are hopefully providing the most honest appraisal of the situation. But it, it can be really difficult to navigate that pathway. But I think what we have to understand is it's not a moment in time, it's a pathway.
0: And I think, I mean, you're highlighting also we think about shared decision-making between a decision-maker and the parents and perhaps the child. I'm going to come back to that, Molly. But it's actually sharing the decision amongst ourselves and our professional colleagues yeah. so that we can share the burden of bearing bad news and the difficult decisions. Absolutely. And perhaps, I guess, the parents getting a sense that there's a second and third and team opinion.
1: yes. And I think that's important for a family to realise that there is a team that is surrounding them and supporting them while this decision is being made and then they're not alone in that decision-making space because it couldn't be incredibly lonely to be making such huge decisions about your child's care and welfare in an, in an area that you have no experience in that you never expected to be in. Um, and I think families need to feel that they have... Um, professionals who've been in this space before and guided other families before to help them make the best decision possible.
0: I want to come back to the being in that space, but before I do, we've thought of so talking about shared decision-making and involving the parents We're we're thinking about respect for persons and, and parental autonomy. And Molly, you raised the issue of zone of discretion whereby people might choose different things and this is one where it's probably legitimate for the parents to choose something that's not the initial recommendation of of the medical of the medical team. Mm. But then you also raised that clash of values. So I want you to put your ethical hat on and try and think about (laughs) this one. Because a sort of decision might be right or wrong. So are the reasons that parents might come up, all that important. So if it's okay not to have active treatment, if we accept that, but there are reasons for not wanting to do it are because they're taking an option that you don't necessarily agree with or believe in or like prayer and like natural therapies. Does, it sounded to me like that worried you a little bit, but is that that important?
2: So... I think that what I'm trying to get at here is trying to allow the family to be as informed as possible. Um, so I I actually don't have any any strong problem with people making decisions for a whole range of different reasons, but I would like to feel confident that the person and the parent has heard and understand understood the information that I'm giving them and has been able to to spend time, as you say, Kanika. It's absolutely true. This needs to be an iterative process. Um, that that they've that they've been able to assimilate that information, and still feel that their path is 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 a good path and the right path, and not to expect something really unrealistic from that path. So. It's really interesting, actually. I've looked after families who have felt that natural therapies were important and have said to me, I I can't say, I can't go to the place where my child might die with this cancer. I can't talk about my child dying with this cancer. I need to keep on hoping that's something that's really important for me. Um, And I actually really respect that as well. And I try and enter into a partnership with the parents in that space where I agree that I'm hoping and wishing for those outcomes as well and as long as they know that I'm worried and they have they they have heard at least once that things may not go as they wish then in the space where no realistic curative treatment is available I'm very happy for them to pursue other therapies. Um, I don't think people need to think every single day, oh my goodness, my child is going to die from their tumour. I don't need to tell them that every single day and I don't need to tell them that every time I meet with them. But I need them to have heard that that's my big worry and that's why I'm recommending the things that I'm recommending.
0: And, And is your need to be heard on that because they might lose the opportunity for decent palliative care...
2: I'm just hoping that they don't have regrets in the future, that they don't wish that they had made a different decision, that they don't feel like they didn't get enough information to be able to make a good decision in the first place. I think that's what my, my biggest concern is.
0: Well, i might ask, Kanika, if you had experience where something like this has happened, and, and if so, do, do parents then have obviously been respected and allowed to go off and make their choices, but actually later on regret... Those.
1: Um, I haven't had parents in that space who've gone off and um, made. Uh, actually, I'll take that back. I did. I, I've just had one example. Actually, I shouldn't have said that. So, I actually did. Most recently, I um, was at a conference, and I bumped into the parent of one of the children I took care of who had an incurable brain tumour, and. Um, they actually sought, um, and it's an incurable brain tumour that is in a location that is not amenable to surgical resection. Um, and they sought um, further therapies um, privately through a surgeon who was willing to offer them that surgical resection. And um, that didn't benefit their child's um, life, it didn't prolong her life. Um, and in discussion with um, this mum after that process had been done although she didn't regret that decision she acknowledged that it, it didn't change anything for her child and I think though that even though she could reflect that that decision was not of benefit for her child I don't think she had regret about taking that decision because I think it was an emotional choice it helped her deal with what was happening with her child at that time. And I've also had other parents who've made emotional decisions and, once again, they haven't regretted them um, because I think for them that's what they needed to do at the time and I think there's a recognition of that.
0: So we're talking about what the parents need and yeah. that's important and, of course, if it truly is an incurable cancer, then the parents are left behind to grieve often for a very, very long Time so how they remember the illness in the end uh, is important, but of course our patient yes. is is the child.
1: That is right.
0: And in this case, Jade is fourteen. Um, Molly, do you think Jade's in a position to determine which pathway? She wants to go a shot at life, albeit with a risk of some impairment, or not having treatment, not putting up with the complications of surgery and radiotherapy, and just living for now for a little while. Could she do that?
2: I think it depends on who she is, the kind of person she is, and the I guess the maturity of her thinking process, I guess one thing that I would say, just to begin with is that although you know we we see in the Charter of Human Rights that every child should have knowledge about their illness and their prognosis and their diagnosis and be intimately involved in that whole discussion. Some children don't actually want to be part of that discussion and they don't want to make the decision. And I think it's incredibly important for us to give children the opportunity to take some part and have their voice heard in this really difficult decision making, but we shouldn't force them to. Um, And in fact, with my adolescent patients, often I will talk to them about what they would like to know and how much they would like information to be filtered through their parents' voice and how much time they want to spend alone with me. And I've certainly got some patients who say, I actually don't want to hear things from you up front. I'd rather mum and dad filtered that for me beforehand because I find it too anxiety provoking and I feel really confident with them making my decisions for me. And that's a 16-year-old young woman I'm thinking about in particular, um, whose whose decision I absolutely respect. Um, There are other young people who feel very strongly that their voice matters and that it is their body and that, um, that they should... Have the ultimate right to um, to have the final say in um, in decision making about what happens to them, um, and that's also a voice that I would like to hear, and will often respect. And in the space of a palliative diagnosis, an incurable diagnosis would put, uh, present would ha- have a very very substantial weight on that child's voice. Um, and in the case of a child who was much, much, much more likely to be cured, if the child said, well, no, they wouldn't have that therapy, I'd be more worried about, um, about accepting that at face value <laughs> because there are some children, I think, who, who genuinely can um, imagine themselves in the future and make decisions based on a knowledge of themselves in the future. And there are some who can't do that. As adequately Um, and in this sort of scenario which comes up from time to time in the oncology world um, I I think we need to rely on our psychological um, colleagues to to help us with um, and our adolescent medicine colleagues to help us with to help us to get a better understanding of um, of the child and their decision making their capacity to make decisions based on an understanding of where that might lead them in the future.
0: Molly, well, you're making it easy on yourself <laughs> in this difficult situation by, I mean, doing the right thing and, and, and involving the child or at least involving the young person to the point to know how much involvement they want. But it doesn't always go like that, does it? And so we have been involved in situations where the parents are shielding the child mm-hmm. from any information. So Kanika, how do you handle that situation where here... It's between you and the parents and they don't want Jade to know and they're not letting you do what you want to do and talk with her.
1: Yeah. Um, I usually approach this um, through um, trying to talk the parents through their concerns. Um, Often uh, parents... um, hold, of course, want to protect their child, but hold also an idea of their child as still a child. Um, And so I think sometimes it's about educating parents about the fact that, you know, a child who's, say, Jade's age, who's 14, who's able to read, is able to go on the internet, is able to investigate, understands a large part of conversations that might be going on around her – actually is probably a lot more aware of her diagnosis than her parents would recognise. And that also um, often there is a contract that seems to exist, um, a silent contract between parents and children, that they're trying both not to hurt each other. And so they're both shielding each other from knowledge that they have. And that might mean that Jade actually is very aware of what her diagnosis and prognosis is, but she doesn't want to hurt her parents by talking about it. And actually that puts her in a more worried, more scared um, position because she's unable to talk about her feelings freely and honestly. And for some families that's enough to bring them around to the idea of having limited discussions um, around what's happening for their child with her directly. For some families, it's it's not. And I think that you just continue to have to work and encourage them to try and engage their child. Um, often, um, I also like to explain to parents that, say in children that are maybe a bit younger than Jade, That the language that we um, use, such as cancer or the name of a specific tumour, you know, which adults, it carries a lot of fear that society, um, that we've, you know, personal experience or society has given us. But children don't always carry that same amount of fear or distress when hearing those words. And it's okay to use those words because it's okay to name what's happening with the child. So they have a better understanding of why their body is changing, why their family is so upset. And it actually can be... Um, really uh, supportive for the child and protective of the child to open a door and allow them to talk about what's happening. Um, And I think if you keep going back again to revisit this topic that you can get um, parents to that understanding. Of course, you will always have parents that never reach that space and that's always a very, very difficult space to be in.
0: And I'm not sure that we're going to solve that problem no. easily on the on the podcast today, but there's still a few things to talk about here because I think although the way that both of you have seen the case that there's not much chance of survival um, but it's not again it's not always as straightforward as that either, and there are times when there's more of a chance of survival, and the parents' decision not to proceed with the recommended treatment is not a good one. So, can you develop a threshold? Can you start to think about? It? I don't know if that's a percentage or that's some other way that we can do that. But I, I would sense already in this case, people would be uncomfortable. Lots of people would be uncomfortable at not. Pressing a little bit harder for active standard medical treatment as we proposed at the beginning. So, you know, when does it start to become obligatory to follow through on the advice?
2: So, I guess I probably disagree with you a little bit there, John. I think that most of our colleagues would not feel strongly that they would override parents in the situation of a child with an incurable high grade glioma. Of Regardless of what what therapeutic path they wanted to take, um, so I think that in that respect, this case is actually quite easy. Um, when there is an increasing chance of um, of cure or of really prolonged survival, then I think that's where it gets a lot stickier for um, for us as as. Um, medical professionals trying to give what we believe to be the best advice to families, and I guess you know that any kind of number, any percentage number is incredibly arbitrary. you know within our service, we talk about sort of a, a risk of um, uh, say say a thirty percent chance of survival. Being kind of an approximate cut off for where you'd say over a thirty percent chance of survival, you'd feel really strongly that you'd want to push ahead with um, with treatment, and that you'd feel extremely uncomfortable if the parents were resistant to that treatment. Um, and but you know, I I think that that's that's a completely arbitrary number, um, and I think in in particular in the um, In the oncological world where we live right now, where there are increasing advances in medical therapy, um, increasing improvements in the cure rates of many kinds of tumours, and this completely unknown and exciting world of targeted agents, where there is really very little evidence in the paediatric space, but gosh, there's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm in that space. I think it becomes harder and harder to, um, to, to make clear decisions and recommendations. Um, I've got to say, I think that we are more often in a space where our patients and their families ask for more treatment rather than asking for less. Um, so the opposite of this case, the case, a, a case where a child has an incurable tumour and parents are begging us for more therapy, for another targeted agent, for more surgery, even for surgery that would neurologically devastate the child in order to prolong their life, um, I think that that's a situation that we see more commonly, and that becomes incredibly ethically fraught. Because, as you said earlier, the child is our patient, and if we genuinely believe, as medical professionals, that these therapies have extraordinarily little or or no chance of helping the child, and quite a substantial and high burden in terms of potential cost, in terms of the child spending a prolonged time in hospital, in terms of potential illness and even life shortening side effects, then it. It is very difficult to recommend those therapies, and if a family is pushing for it, um, it, it it puts you in a very difficult um, ethical space. I guess what we always want to do is to try to retain a relationship with the family so that they so that they continue to have the capacity to have very good palliative care, as you spoke about earlier, um, and to be linked with hospital. Staff and to have the supports that we have available and not to feel like they can't access those supports because they're wanting to make different decisions from what we have in the hospital. Um, but at the same time, it's really difficult to um, to promote and accept. And certainly, certainly you don't want to feel complicit in therapy that you genuinely believe is going to be harmful for the child, and that's sometimes what parents want.
0: It sure is a difficult Problem that's emerging, and I think is going to have to be the subject of another classic uh, conundrum. But there's still something I think, just as we get towards the end of this one, because I still want to make it a little bit harder for you, because the parents they want to go and have natural therapies and, and maybe pray, they perhaps they even want to go overseas. So then I'm concerned that they're going to lose the opportunity for good palliative care and good end of life. So even if they're not pursuing complex, difficult therapy that's full of side effects, they're still potentially missing out on something. Now, Kanika, am I just being a a control freak and wanting to give them everything? uh, Or should I be concerned, or would you be concerned about them going overseas for these unproven therapies and missing on something they could have here if they stayed?
1: Yes, absolutely. So that, I mean, is always an ongoing concern for me when families um, are looking at alternative therapies or therapies overseas where they might not be able to engage the supports they need. Because as you said, it's the child that is the focus of our care. The child is our patient. And I always worry when I know that a family is not linked into those supports because the last thing I want is for the child to be in pain or distress, or for the family to be in pain or distress because they don't have the right supports available to them. Um, Some of the therapies that families pursue overseas are not without risk, and that is another concern that I have. Often these therapies are unresearched. They are sometimes in institutions that have no supportive care measures, and families find themselves isolated and alone in countries um, often you know, with huge financial burdens and, and no family or friends to support them. Um, so in many cases, I try and sort of highlight these issues with families if that is what they're proposing. Um, but often in these situations because these are emotional decisions, they're very hard to challenge and they're very hard to give or provide a logical framework to. So the only thing you can do, or I've found that I've been able to do in this space, is just to make sure that the family's linked into all of these supports in our hospital so that when they return, or if they return um, back to their community and their home, that they can access those supports and that child has all the supports they need. And often that can be very um, small things like making sure they have a music therapist or an art therapist that goes to the home because there are small ways that you can engage a family and a child um, that allow you a window into what's going on because the last thing you want to do is lose contact entirely because then you have no hope of helping that child. So that's probably what I focus on the most.
0: I mean, we as medical professionals can insist on children having treatments therapies that are good for them. Yep. Particularly when they're life-saving. Um, so Molly, can we insist on palliative care?
2: Um, I think you can try, <laughs> <laughs> but there, there are some families who can't accept palliative care. I think that Kanika is absolutely right. The one thing that you've got to do is keep the door open gotta you've gotta got have that door open, you've got to keep on reaching out to these families and making these therapies and um, these these supports available. Um, but you can't force people to to access care, you know, and some kids can't bear to access care. And you know the From a palliative care point of view, I've certainly looked after adolescents who prefer to have more pain and less sedation, and that's a decision that I'm happy for them to make. Um, I think it becomes more fraught when parents are trying to make that decision for a small child who looks like they're suffering. And I think that sometimes we're left trying desperately to hold and build that relationship and to put in as as much support as we can to try and reduce that suffering but that it, it may well not be perfect and it may well not be what we would wish for a child or their family and sometimes that's a journey that they have to take. Um, in terms of the families going overseas you know I will remember strongly the words of a dad with a, a child with the same incurable brain tumour that we keep on talking about um he said uh he, who went to pursue natural therapies overseas um and he said you've told me that there are tigers all around what should i do should i just wait until the tiger takes my child or will, do i scoop them up with this hope that maybe i'll be able to get away from the tigers for a while and that really resonated with me i really understood where it was coming for, from from um, you know we i get concerned as a medical professional when a patient and their family um, uh, remortgage their house in order to go and have therapies that i believe are probably futile overseas but the research shows that um, whilst medical professionals get worried about the cost, the financial cost to families, families don't care about that at all. Um, they're quite happy to pay that money, and that is something that they feel like they have to do to be good parents to their kids. Um, so I found that that's uh, that that's never a helpful um, path to be talking about because I know that that's that's my issue and my concern and not the issue and concern of the families. So I think that these are families that you just got to try and meet as much as you can on their own ground to keep those doors and those those methods of communication, um, those lines of communication open as much as we can and just to stick in there, just to stay with them as much as we can so that we can give them the best benefit possible.
0: So I think that we've heard that even though perhaps the initial ethical decision to allow the parents not to have surgery and radiotherapy for Jade is one that we're comfortable, both of you seem comfortable with. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that there is an obligation, perhaps this is our strongest obligation, our ethical obligation here to keep working with the families towards Doing the best for them um, in a way that we both see is the best for them, which might include some palliative care or at least making sure they're informed about their choices so that there's no future regrets.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, thank you very much for joining us, uh, Kanika it's and Molly.
2: Thanks so much, John. It's been
0: a really interesting discussion about an issue that uh, is very difficult and it sounds like you've faced on a number of occasions. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more at the Royal Children's Hospital website. Just go to rch.org.au forward slash podcasts or find us on your podcast app. If you would like to find out more about the activities of the Children's Bioethics Centre, including our annual conference, visit us at rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. And there you'll find lots of resources about children's bioethics. We'd love to hear what you thought about this podcast, so please leave us a review. Essential ethics, be inspired.